Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. It is good to be with you again. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, go to our website, johnwarrenmedia.com. Please feel free to leave a comment there on our comment form or send along an email to john at johnwarrenmedia.com. Well, today we're going to interrupt our series of really interesting conversations with a diverse group of people, many of whom I have a tremendous amount of respect for, and we'll resume that in a couple of weeks. I have an exciting interview planned on the Ukraine. I'm excited about uh, sending that one along, but today I want to talk to you. I want to do an update on the economy. When we started the podcast, we had a series, we worked in a series of, I believe it was three episodes on the economy, just kind of a general overview. And I recently in my classes at Circle Christian School provided the students with sort of an an overview of of all things uh, macroeconomic related, just to be sure that we had really addressed the important concepts. Well, in the context of that, I want to talk about changes in the economy as they relate to, as they impact all of us today, here in 2022. And I know everyone is experiencing some form of sticker shock by the changes in uh, gas prices, among, among other things. So I think I think we're all impacted by just just to put it really simply, gas prices rising at a rate that rivals the late seventies, nineteen seventies, during the Jimmy Carter, Richard Nixon period, and we're seeing interest rates beginning to rise. The Federal Reserve just a couple of weeks ago increased the discount rate. That is the rate that banks charge each other and. The Fed charges banks for overnight borrowed funds from a quarter percent, that is 0.25%, or for those of you in finance, 25 basis points to 0.5% or 50 basis points. So the discount rate doubled from its lowest level ever. And that anticipation of that increase has caused long-term rates, that is, let, let's just let's just simplify this and say mortgage rates, thirty-year mortgage rates, to go up in recent weeks by about a full percent to end up at, you know, depending on the exact particulars of the loan, up to about four point six percent. And so I I went back and 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 looked at the history of interest rates and looked at the history of various economic indicators. And I think it's just worth noting that this trend that we're seeing, oh, and I, I should also add, we're seeing disruptions in the supply chain. Every, everyone knows that. If you go to our 
local supermarket. It's called Publix for those of you in other parts of the country or parts of the world. Uh, there, there are now sections that uh, really struggle to maintain inventory. So there, there are holes in the inventory, and we're seeing that. We're seeing tremendous price increases, and we measure inflation, which if you remember from our previous episodes on the economy, inflation is really, according to Milt Friedman at least, the late Milt Friedman, the late great Milt Friedman, conservative economists, we see that inflation, we know that inflation is a decrease in the value of currency caused by an increase in supply of the currency. So we're not going to get in the weeds. What it means to you and to me is rising prices. And and so we're going to speak of inflation as as just increases in prices. But we know that this printing of money that our government does, they call it quantitative easing sometimes. Sometimes they call it stimulus of various types, or sometimes they call it an economic relief package of some sort. But when they pump money into the economy to really simplify it, they actually cause the federal government, the U.S. government causes this inflation and causes price to rise. Now, there are other kinds of inflation. There's a thing called cost push inflation and demand pull inflation. You can kind of see some version of demand pull inflation in the housing market in Florida and other states, but you know we're in Florida, so we see that there's this tremendous demand from people migrating here. Estimates are that we have about an average of about 2,000 people a day coming to Florida, growing this uh, population of 22 million or so to a much higher number quickly. And that demand and, and people buying houses sight unseen, I know it's happening everywhere all over the country, but here it's quite a phenomenon where if the house is priced in some, not even reasonable, but generally reasonable range, then it will sell at a higher number than is sometimes even the asking price, and it'll sell in just a few days. There's this auction-like environment where realtors will hold an open house over the weekend and then by Monday at 5 expect multiple offers, post the fact on their listing that there are multiple offers. And, and so we're seeing rising prices, and one could argue that in the housing market, there is some demand pull for these prices. In other words, as soon as demand, which gets expressed by consumers with their wallets, with their dollars, by spending their dollars, when demand slows down, then the pace of inflation sometimes slows down. And in particular, I believe that is true in the housing market. There's also a cost push inflation, and we've had increases in the minimum wage. We've had uh, costs due to supply chain disruption, and now gas prices going up so high. So those costs are sometimes passed along sort of without regard to demand to the consumer. So bottom line, we've got rising prices, and we are now, based on what we're hearing from the Federal Reserve, we're going to be in a protracted period of rising interest rates. These things all come together in complex ways and, and various indices correlate, others don't. But just for our purposes today, let's just simplify this and say that the only tool, and my friends at the Fed would disagree with this because they do have a couple of other tools, but they aren't that effective. The only real tool, the only tool with efficacy that they have is to raise interest rates. And when you say, well, 
well, how does the Fed raise interest rates? And how do, how do these mortgage rates get determined? And, and who determines the prime rate? And what about the rate on my credit card, which seems to be a lot higher? And so on. Well, the market determines all of those rates except one. And that one is the Federal Reserve's discount rate. All others are just sort of settled by the market. So there's this thing called equilibrium. And, you know, I don't want to get in the weeds because I don't, this is an audio only podcast. And if it were a video podcast, I could flash up on the screen a, a supply and demand curve and I could show you where they, they intersect. And I could tell you that in a free market, in a truly free market, supply and demand intersect at this point that we call equilibrium. And the market is, and that, that's, a, that's kind of a simplification, but the market is constantly looking for equilibrium. If demand is slower than or, or less than supply, if demand doesn't match up with supply, then we have a surplus of goods and services. And that just makes sense, doesn't it? And if supply doesn't keep up with or support demand, then we have a shortage. So it's not that simple. We have many products and services. We have a global economy. We've got imports and exports and tariffs and quotas and all kinds of complexities going on. We've got trade agreements with other countries and we trade an awful lot with China. But the market in a free market economy is looking for equilibrium. So what does all of this mean to you and me, to us as consumers? Well, there's a been a lot of work done on consumer choice theory, and that is the why do consumers do what they do? And there are some patterns that are fairly predictable. When consumers act rationally, and they, they generally do, then their buying patterns, their employment patterns, their demand expressed by spending money the way that they do, and so on, those things are generally fairly predictable. But who would have thought that we would have a toilet paper shortage during the COVID period, during the, the really robust part of the COVID period, during that first summer in 2020, when we found that paper towels and toilet paper were in scarce supply? Or who would have thought that we would have these circuit boards and chips that would slow down the auto industry, the supply of which has diminished and has slowed the auto industry such that if you want to buy a new car, mo most new cars at least, by most uh, manufacturers, you'll wait and often have to order the car or put your name, put a deposit on the car and wait until it arrives. So there are some things about this economy that we didn't anticipate. But one of the things that occurs to me when I look at just all of the indicators and I try to come up with some comfort or at least some reasonably reliable information to, to focus on, I have to look at federal government spending. And I, I know I talk about that a lot on this podcast, but it is incredibly troubling. It's troubling that Congress won't, won't act in the best interest of the electorate. It's troubling that the old axiom that government functions at the consent of the governed is not necessarily always true. Government should do so, but doesn't. Sometimes it feels like the political interest of Congress 
determine the direction that our government goes in rather than the actual economic and, and other best interest of, of the citizens, of the electorate. So what are we to do when government won't address these things? Government is still printing money to stimulate the economy or ease the burden, some of the burdens in the economy. That is creating this inflationary environment. So what can we do? Well, let's look at this in the context of just a couple of economic variables. And when, when we address the economy, we can do this in really heady, esoteric terms with talking about various economic theories. Uh, there are a number of economists I would commend to you. I would commend their work to you. The one who is living, who is my favorite, is Thomas Sowell. It's uh, spelled S-O-W-E-L-L. If you don't know Thomas Sowell, go to YouTube and watch some of his interviews He's a Hoover Institution fellow out at Stanford, and a guy named Peter Robinson does some really good, I think it's called Uncommon Knowledge, and he does uh, interviews with various smart conservative people, and Thomas Sowell is among my favorites. There's also a gentleman I mentioned previously, Dr. Milton Friedman, who was uh, at the uh, University of Chicago before he died many years ago. But their work collectively, and there, and there are there are others. You can you can go back and look at uh, John Maynard Keynes and others who who have contributed to the body of thought here. But I, instead of getting in the weeds and just regurgitating for you their economic theories and implications for us today, I want to talk about just some very practical things. I want to talk about our money. I want to talk about our income and expenses. And I'm not going to go all Dave Ramsey and do a really simple how-to guide, how to balance a checkbook, how to have a budget and save some cash reserves. You know, we've talked about some of those things in previous podcast episodes. But what is actually, in this environment where things are changing so fast, what's actually going on with our money? Why, when we look, for example, at the stock market, does the Dow Jones Industrial Average, the NASDAQ, which is another, just another index, or, or the S&P 500 and those various indices, why are they continuing to climb? Why are they holding steady at these very high levels? Why are individual stocks, like say even Delta Airlines, uh, whose symbol is DAL, or some of the banks, or Facebook, or Tesla, even older stocks like with well-established companies like IBM, GE, why, why is the market holding its own in this environment where the consumer is absolutely getting hammered? The cost that you experience when you go to the gas pump and fill your tank is double what it was just a few years ago. And you know that. You're supermarket tab when you pull your buggy up to the cashier and if you do that once a week you, you fill it full it has probably also almost doubled in recent years it's definitely up by 20 25 percent year over year now to where it was last year and and we could cite you know specifics on specific cost of essentials in that regard. So what is actually 
going on with our money and what can we do about this? Well, I'm going to give you the good news first. The good news is you can now go to your bank or find another bank if yours isn't doing this, and you can get about a half percent yield on a savings or money market account. So you can get about 0.5% right now on money that was sitting around earning nothing. That's a good thing. If you'd like to commit your money for a full year and you go to a website called NerdWallet, or maybe it's you go to many others, but that's one you could go to, and you can go to any one of these sites that compare CD rates for you, TD Ameritrade, any, any of the trading sites, and you can find certificates of deposit now that are paying over 1% for one year, just over 1% for one year. Or you can go directly or indirectly. I'd recommend indirectly because it's easier to the United States government buy a T-bill for one year. And I think I checked the yields a few days ago and they're at about 1.2% for one year. Now that doesn't sound like much, but if you've shopped for these things, you know that they are much improved over where we were just a few months ago. So so the silver lining is that our savings are, are going to begin to, to earn better yields. But the downside is that that savings rate, that those interest rates are not keeping pace with inflation. So one of the fears that you might have is that your income and its sufficiency are now being threatened by these rising prices. So on a very practical level, consumers, we talked briefly just a minute ago about consumer demand theory, consumers express demand. You and I collectively are the expressors of demand in this economy. And the way we do this is with our feet. We go from one competitor to another. And, and you're probably not as quick to click on buy now on Amazon at the moment. Or maybe you're not as quick to go to the most convenient store and you might go to a slightly less convenient or less appealing store or maybe you're buying you're doing what economists calls you're purchasing alternative goods you're purchasing replacement goods that cost less well all of those things make sense it makes more sense today than ever to have a household budget and i know my friends who just love starbucks and those kinds of expenditures are now painfully having to having to reevaluate some of those expenditures and so it's always wise to go back and and look at the budget and so on now on the other side of the equation as we look at what is really going on and what can we do is this thing called GDP gross domestic product we used to call it back in the day 20 30 years ago we called it gross national product but it is, in fact, a measure of, of the value of all finished goods, the dollar value of all finished goods and services in the economy. So we don't count the tires, we count the car. We count the finished goods, the complete finished goods in the economy. And GDP is something that the Fed has used as a measure of, of one of its targets. It has several objectives. You know, One is uh, to maintain uh, reasonable prices, and we could argue that we're kind of failing at that one at the moment. Another is uh, moderate long-term interest rates. And then the other is is reasonable economic growth. I'm not reading from their website. They frame those things just a little differently. But if you think about a reasonable growth for the economy, usually 
among economists, something like 2% or more, let's say something in the 2 to 4% is generally considered a reasonable aspiration for economic growth. And, and we're seeing growth that is consistently sort of in that ballpark. Well, as interest rates rise, uh, one, of the, one of the hopes of the Fed, uh, one of the reasons for this Fed policy is to slow down the economy a bit to bring prices under control. So GDP, you should expect it to continue to kind of limp along right now. We have an interesting phenomenon, though. Usually, unemployment and inflation track together. And what we have in this environment is very low as measured the way we measure it, unemployment. So most people, although I have friends who object to this characterization, most people who are looking for a job can find one today. Now, is, is it ideal? Is it, you know, are there geographical challenges? Are there challenges from one industry to another? Well, of course. But generally, we are fully employed somewhere in the 35 to 4% range. We consider that full employment because of seasonal and frictional and cyclical uh, employment deviations. So as we look at what we can do as consumers, given all of that and all of these indices and rising rates, rising costs, a war going on in Ukraine, an administration that blames inflation, particularly at the gas pump on, on Russia, what really should we do? How do we interface, particularly Christians, how do we interface with our government and, and with this economy? So I don't have a, a how-to list, a step-by-step list, but I want to talk about some of the most important issues. One is you're probably already doing this buy in bulk, try to anticipate needs, we try to scale back and even on entertainment, just do an assessment. Some people call it zero-based budgeting, where you just sort of start with the presupposition that, that I'm going to spend zero, and everything I add to that list, I'm going to have to spend some money, but I start with zero so that everything I add to that list is, is essential. And so there's that. Most of you naturally do that. Many people already do that and have done it for years, regardless of the state of the economy, because you want to be good stewards. I certainly want to do that. My family certainly thinks that way. But there's always some belt tightening that can be done, some planning in advance, and so on. I think the next item, which is, it probably feels really detached of me to even bring it up, but I have to, because we're in an off-year election year where we're going to elect Congress this year in 2022 in November, and I think it's real important to interface with our, our representatives, our potential, those running for office, know who they are at both the state and federal level, and quiz them or inquire at least, if it's not possible to quiz them directly, on their view of government spending. It's going to be obvious to everyone in about six months that the following is going on. Interest rates are very likely to continue to rise. Prices aren't going to immediately moderate. And so we're going to have the cost of debt. Think of it. Think of the things that affect you. Uh, The cost of mortgage money, the cost of any borrowed money is going to continue to rise. And so 
it's important to understand from our elected officials, particularly those who we're electing to the U.S. Congress, where they are on this matter of government spending. If they believe, if a candidate believes that, well, government is supposed to do this, is supposed to give relief to the economy by printing money, government should continue to spend because, after all, government spending is stimulative to the economy. If they believe that, please, please, please find another candidate to vote for. Government does not create wealth. No matter what anybody tells you about modern monetary policy, the Japanese model, or anything else, all this talk about the federal government and our net worth, and, and as long as GDP is growing, and as long as GDP, there's some ratio of GDP to our national debt, as long as those things are in place, we're fine continuing to borrow money, people will say. And they're wrong. I don't believe we should panic. I don't believe we're at the stage where we push the panic button. I don't even believe we're beyond hope. I think if we had a Congress that was resolute, let me, let me just say this. If we could vote for Congress people who understand that a balanced budget is important, and well, let me tell you what I mean by a balanced budget. You have to do this at some point. You, you can avoid balancing your personal budget and borrow money on credit cards and other forms of debt or from friends, neighbors, family members for a while, but eventually you run out of tricks, don't you? We do, personally. And eventually we end up filing bankruptcy or doing something else or changing our ways to protect ourselves. Or we get in real trouble financially. Well, our government doesn't see it that way. When I, when I said balanced budget, what I mean is budget, set up the federal budget, the federal budget that should be approved annually and rarely is approved on time. But that budget should be set up by Congress so that our expenses don't exceed our income. Now, they're trying to set a moving target. If you think about it, the federal government doesn't really determine total income through income taxes and other sources. They can determine the rate of income. They can determine our tax rates, but our actual income is based on our actual taxable income times the marginal tax rate set by the Treasury through the IRS. So again, a guy named Art Laffer has done, uh, he's older now, but still alive. And he's, he's done a lot of work on this. And, and it's, it's actually become called the Laffer curve that actually says that if we lower tax rates on individuals and companies, we can actually increase the income in our economy, thereby increasing the revenue so we can increase taxable income through productivity, thereby increasing the revenue and so on. There's all this talk now. When I say that, I'll get lots of uh, social media comments and correspondence from people saying, oh, that's such a conservative position and that it's just not true and you love rich people and, and so on. You're favoring the rich and the rich aren't paying their fair share. And, you know, I can just hear Bernie Sanders voice when I say all this. Well, you know, there's some truth to that, isn't there? The, the very wealthy get lots of tax breaks because it, that, that is viewed, their income and their, their worth are viewed as stimulative in the economy. They can purchase the services of better advisors and so on. That's just a fact of life. But to try to pummel them and extract cash from them, particularly to try to tax savings or otherwise confiscate savings, would be ludicrous and horrible for the economy. It is investment in business, investment in 
and various things in the economy that stimulate it. So best thing Congress could do, sure, erase some loopholes, resolve some loopholes in the tax code. That's great. But the best thing they could do is pass a balanced budget. And I know it feels detached. If you're going to Publix and you're standing in line and you're thinking, oh my goodness, I'm paying this with a check or a credit card, but this hurts and I can't continue to do this. I'm going to have to get another job or I'm going to have to ask for a raise or I, I'm going to have to go get a job. Uh, maybe maybe you're the spouse of someone who works and you've stayed home and you're homeschooling or doing something else that is important. And now you're, you're having to evaluate all that. I don't take those things lightly. I know they're real and I know it sounds abstract to say, well, call your congressman and vote for the right people. But if we don't do that, if we don't care about that, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to blurt this out. If we don't make a conscious effort, Christians, as a group, as a voting block, if we don't engage in this, then this economic challenge is going to become catastrophic. And I don't even like saying those words. I'm not a fear monger. I want you to relax. I want you to trust in God. I want us to practice the imperatives in scripture all, uh, to avail ourselves of all of the promises, the beautiful promises of scripture. I want you to think about Romans 8, 1. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus every day of your life. And I want to do that every day of my life. But I have to keep it real. If this debt continues, picture this, $30 trillion-ish is where we are right now. In future commitments, in forward commitments, my goodness, we're really over $50 trillion. If you look at just immediate future commitments in national debt, if we don't stop that spending, if Congress doesn't have the courage, the political will, and that's what this is, if they don't stop caring more about their next election than they do our economy long term or the stealing they're doing from future generations by racking up this debt, then we are going to have an economic problem that we can't solve. And it looks something horrible. It, it looks like this or something like this. Imagine interest rates with the Fed saying just this year, they're going to raise rates another three or four times. And now they're hinting we might raise one of these increases might be more than a quarter because inflation is getting away from us. It's, it, they're calling it runaway inflation. They certainly want to avoid hyperinflation. But there is a scenario where the cost of the national debt increases so much that we can't service it, that we have to take on more debt to service our additional debt. Now, if your family goes through that, it's called insolvency when your cash flow is just insufficient no matter what you do and you have to borrow money to service your debt that is unsustainable that will that is impot for a short season if you're injured or or you're ill or or you've had some catastrophic event some challenging event economically then yes you can use debt for a short period of time to bridge gaps but the federal government's not doing this for a short period of time they're they're in for the long haul and our debt really is at $30 trillion. And if servicing that debt becomes three or four times more expensive, then we're in real trouble. But let me tell you why there's urgency associated with us engaging as a group, as a nation, to address this problem. It's critical that we do so because to correct this budget shortfall each year, to balance the budget, 
Congress has to have the political will to cut two things that no conservative I know ever, or, and probably no person, no, no, no member of the electorate, no citizen of the United States wants us to have to address. One is the entitlements, the Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid entitlements. They have to be addressed. There's just no way around it. If you look at the percentage that activity is of the total budget, you have to address it. The other one is military spending. It has to be addressed. And, and I, I, you know, I know how politically incorrect that is to say among conservatives. Military spending has to be addressed. And, and how dare I say that in, a, in an environment like this where freedom is being threatened across the world and we're sending, uh, I forget how much money, I think it's $800 billion to Ukraine and in and, and all kinds of resources. How dare you say that we need to cut military, we need to spend more. Well, well, we can't is the real answer. Is there a single conservative congressman who has the political will to say that, to tell the truth? Well, recall the podcast Relentless Truth for a reason, and I'm telling you the truth. Those things have to change. The waste in federal government, if you take the executive branch where most of the waste is, so we have legislative, judicial, and executive branch. Most of the waste, although there's plenty of waste all over, is in the executive branch's spending and you fix all of that. You take every, it's, it's impossible to do this, but if you take all the waste out, all the waste out of all government, all the, you, you have really frugal nerds like me or younger people than me who are smarter than me who examine all this and they say, hey, through the Congressional Budget Office and all the other resources that we have, we're going to eliminate all government waste and poof, we eliminate all that waste immediately. We still have a huge deficit, we still don't put a dent in our debt. Now, the the real way on a macro level that we deal with this is we grow ourselves, we grow the economy, and we grow out of this national debt. We grow to the point where federal income is sufficient. So we got to shore up the tax code. We got to grow some. We got to eliminate waste. We're going to have to cut entitlements. And all of these things are politically incredibly challenging. I, I really seriously doubt that anyone who's ever had a platform like this has ever been elected to Congress. But if we don't recognize this as a country, we are in real trouble. And so we must do those things. And if we don't, then we're going to get to the point where we can't service the debt. That's it in a nutshell. I know I've rambled through this, but that's really it. So there's no pill that we can take. There's no silver bullet that we can fire. This is going to be about sacrifice and hard work as a nation. And I know, I've said it several times, I know how politically challenging that will be. Here's the problem if we don't do those things. And that's where I was going a minute ago. If we don't do those things, then we're going to wake up one day and realize we should have. The way economic indicators work, the way these indices work is some are leading and some are lagging. Some inform us by taking a look in the rearview mirror. Others allow us to look ahead. Well, when you look at the lagging indicators and you just think of it as driving a car and you pass that exit and you see it in the rearview mirror and you think, ah, that was the exit I meant to take. And, and then you look at the map or the next sign and you realize, oh my goodness, I've got, I've got to go 17 miles before the next exit. When we pass these milestones in the economy and the lagging indicators show us that you just passed the exit, then you make conditions far, far worse. Now here's, here's where it gets really 
depressing. And I want to leave us with our great hope in Christ today. But think about this for a second. Consumer choice theory says that there are rational players in the economy and there are also irrational players. Our behavior is sometimes irrational. You got to see it with toilet paper. There's supply and demand for toilet paper, not to be gross, but it, it didn't it didn't really change, did it? No, it didn't. It looked like it changed because people hoarded it. And, and that was irrational, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, I know people who went to Texas and bought a truck, a semi-truck full of toilet paper and sold it in their neighborhoods. So irrational behavior begins to happen when we pass the exit economically. And my concern is that the economy rocks along with everybody sort of whistling and humming and ignoring the reality. And then when we start to recognize the reality, well, wait a minute, mortgage rates just went to 6%. Or, well, wait a minute, gas just went to 6 or $8 a gallon. I, I, it now costs me more than I can afford to really go to work or take my kids to school or take them to alternative things that we do that aren't necessarily mandatory but are real important to us like sporting events or social clubs or other activities like educational activities like robotics or or special clubs and teams that we're involved in. So when that happens, consumers are the ones who express demand. I, I know there's corporate demand and business demand and all that, but but I don't care about that in the grand scheme of things. Consumer demand drives the economy, period. And when consumers really pull their horns in, and you got to see this with toilet paper, but when consumers panic and stop spending money on concerts and sports tickets and and purchases of things that aren't absolutely essential, then you're going to see the economy turn down. You're going to see GDP turn down. And our government then is out of tricks. All the money printing in the world does nothing but exacerbate inflation. All of the austerity matters just sort of scratch the surface on our national debt and on this problem. And so we end up with this thing that's sometimes called stagflation, but it's really where the economy's not growing. In fact, the economy's declining and we have inflation. And that's really where we are today. We don't recognize it yet because not everybody has looked in the rearview mirror and realized that we just passed the exit. And I'm not suggesting we passed the last available exit, but we have got to elect government officials who get this. We've got to care about this. We should be protesting in an orderly way. We should be protesting government spending and government printing of money. And we should be doing so right now. We should be united in this effort. We shouldn't be fragmented and splintered as we are. Republicans and Democrats alike should join hands, should lock arms, and candidates should be elected who actually get this. We should change our paradigm. The paradigm of the electorate has to change in this country. We are the leader The leaders, our nation is the leader, oftentimes it's our president referenced this way, of the free world. Well, we are 
we get that status primarily because of our military strength, but actually primarily because of the strength of our economy. If you notice, all world economies are expressed in terms of the dollar. Even cryptocurrency is referenced in dollars and dollar value. And all other, whether it's Western Europe, Eastern Europe, Asia, South America, all all other economies, all other countries, currencies are expressed in uh, from a global standpoint in terms of the dollar because we lead the world. And, and so if we don't take these measures, if we don't adjust now our fiscal and monetary policy, as, as we've discussed here in this podcast episode, then we're going to pass that exit. And then, then the measures are very draconian. Well, you know, you might say, well, I don't like that. That's negative talk. That doesn't sound good. It really, that doesn't appeal to me. I can't find candidates who really get it. Well, well if, if you don't engage, if we don't engage now, that, then, then we are going to have to take more draconian measures later. And those are not pleasant. Those are things like, well, you get 50% of your social security payout that you've paid in and your employers paid in over the years. Or, or we have to cut our military by 25% from where it is today and can't develop new systems and spend money on those or or we're having to ration this or that or imagine going back to some of the policies of Jimmy Carter and Richard Nixon with price controls that didn't work and the like we're a breath away from those things so i want to encourage us all to rally if i've made you angry during this podcast i sincerely apologize that is not where I'm coming from. I want us to look objectively at the critical elements of the economy and understand them. If I've made you afraid, if I've exacerbated anxiety, I want to apologize for that too, because I think this relieves anxiety. The truth is anxiety reducing, I hope. If you're an economist or you're in investment banking or an investment advisor, and I've said something that has made you angry, or you'd like to discuss some element of the conclusion that I'm reaching here, I'd be happy to hear from you at johnwarrenmedia.com, john at johnwarrenmedia.com, or use our contact form there. I'd be happy to have a discussion. If you're qualified, if you're capable, and you want to shed a little more light on this, I'm happy to have you on the podcast to discuss this further. I know that these basic principles, and they are incredibly elementary, For anybody who's been to college and had macroeconomic theory as an undergraduate student even, you know that these concepts are very basic. But the application of them is just critical today. A clear-eyed understanding of these truths is absolutely critical. I want your family and my family to be successful, to to enjoy the liberty that our forefathers provided for us, that so many have shed their blood for and spent their treasure on over these 250 years or so. So that's it for today. That is the economy. That is an update on where we are. Inflation, as measured by price increases, is much higher than the 8% that our government is reporting. Interest rates are on their way up, and this economy is going to begin to cool. So I would just urge you, now is the time to to button up any financing on your home. Now is the time to solidify 
those uh, personal financial commitments and, and to do so conservatively. Now might be the time for an insurance checkup with your insurance agent to say, hey, can I increase my deductibles or are there other things I could do to save costs? Now might be the time to to settle in a little little stronger with employment. If you're looking for a job, now now might be the time to try to push that process forward. So just one quick disclaimer, I don't give investment advice because I don't know your situation. First, I'm not licensed to give investment advice. The fact that I have years of banking experience and, and an MBA and, and the School of Hard Knocks has taught me much might make some of these observations value to you generally, but I am not giving you personal financial advice here. I'm not qualified to do so. I'm not selling anything. I don't engage in the world of personal finance or earning fees. Don't have advertisers on this podcast other than my own company, CFS Financial Christian Financial Solutions, which works with ministries and nonprofits all over the country. So I hope this is helpful. I hope you'll come back next week. We're going to to have a, a couple of really interesting episodes coming up. One in a couple of weeks will feature a guest on the Ukraine. I'm excited about that episode. Thank you for supporting the podcast. It's been almost a year now, and I want to thank you, the loyal listener. I am shocked by the popularity of this podcast, Relentless Truth with John Warren, and it is just a humbling experience to bump into you and hear or to receive your email message or messages through my contact form or even your comments on social media. It is just encouraging, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to share these thoughts with you each week. Uh, one, one more thing before we go, I would ask you to go to social media. I post on uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn every week. I post each new episode or some reference to each episode. Each episode is released on Monday, very early in the morning on Mondays. And uh, before noon on Monday, I push that episode out there with a link to my website. You can find us on Apple. You can find us on Spotify and Google and wherever you get your podcast. The website again is johnmorinmedia.com and the email is john at johnmorinmedia.com. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren.